So, it was a long time ago, but it started with a sum, and here's the sum. There was also a song, which I haven't brought with me today to play to you, and I wonder how many of you remember this particular calculation. 2 plus plus 3 plus 4 equals 14. It's taken from where? It is a long time ago, but... Oh, come on. Somebody knows. I'll give you a clue. It's the first book of the New Testament. Have a look at chapter 1 of Matthew, and we'll work it out together. Two plus three plus four equals fourteen. Well, only in some sort of calculations. Um, if you ever want to get some very weird calculations and basis on which to do them, I su- su- suggest you talk to some of the mathematicians or, f- or physicists in our congregation who work in all kinds of funny number bases from time to time, which I don't actually understand, but I do hear them talk about. And in Matthew chapter one, when we opened uh, this series a long time ago and thinking about the kingdom of heaven we started in Matthew chapter 1 which is really just a list of names which probably seemed a very odd place to start at the, uh, a series on the kingdom of heaven but a very important place to start because as you look at the genealogy of Jesus that's there in Matthew chapter 1 in the opening section one of the first things you'll notice is that there are two key figures who are uh, referred to right at the very beginning look at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 1 a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David the son of Abraham. And right at the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel, he wants to set out some very important things to the people to whom he is writing. Things that they will hear and instantly will stir all kinds of things in their minds. Jesus Christ, not just a surname added on after Jesus, but Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You don't get bigger names than this in the history and life of the people of Israel. But he not only makes reference to to two key people besides Jesus at the very beginning, he also makes reference to three important eras in Israel's history because his list of names, as you can see there, is divided up into three sections. And they roughly, or they, they follow three key periods of Israel's experience. The first is the call and possession of the land of promise, which reached its height in King David. The second is the decline in the life of the people of God following David's rule and Solomon's rule and the consequence of that sinful rebellion which culminates in the exile and all the names that are there, if they don't mean much to you, they would have meant a great deal to the people who were reading them for the first time because they're a list of the names of people who played a part in that deteriorating situation, not always a bad part, that, that happened after the reign of David and his son Solomon. And then thirdly, There's another era about which we don't have a great deal of detail, which is that time when the people were brought back to the land and that period in between them being brought back to the land and resettling and all the various upheavals that took place until the birth of Jesus Christ. So besides these three eras, four important events are referred to in this list of names. Um, The calling of God's people through Abraham, the promise that was made to them, and the provision of the promised land, the exile that befell them because of their disobedience and their walking away from God, the birth of the Messiah, the fulfillment of all God's promises, and the fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. So you have these numbers 
And you get a lot of numbers and numerical things going on in the opening chapter of Matthew as Matthew begins to open up the idea of the kingdom of heaven. But the 14 actually has to do with a number of other things. Most of the lists of names come in batches of 14. Um, The name of David, uh, which has a numerical value. In Hebrew, letters not only have a value as a letter, but also as a number, and they're very often put together. And people say that when Matthew pulls all this together, there are just ideas in here that he's working with and things that he wants us to understand. And he wants to highlight this fact that Jesus comes in the line of David. You can't be absolutely certain about some aspects of uh, the way in which numbers work out. But there's no doubt an important structure going on here in Matthew's introduction as he begins to open up the theme of the kingdom of heaven. So he highlights two key people, Abraham and David. He highlights three eras, the era of promise, of decline and restoration. He highlights four key events, the calling of Abraham, the anointing of David, the exile of Israel, and ultimately the birth of Jesus. And he seems to hammer home the message that this baby Jesus he's about to talk about This descendant of David is none other than the Messiah, the one who was promised. And essentially what he's doing with this list of names, the structure that he puts on it and all the rest of it is saying that Jesus is the biggest thing that ever happened to Israel. And he's gone on to make the point that Jesus is the biggest thing that ever happened to the world. So as we were thinking about that, we were thinking about some of the implications of it at the time. And one of them was, we said, you know, that to think of Jesus as just your own personal Jesus would be to miss the point of what Matthew is going to say to us about Jesus. And to miss the point of what God is doing when he's establishing his kingdom. And it reminds us too that throughout all of the history which is uh, represented in these lists of names here, God works in his own good time and brings to fulfillment his promises in his time. Now that's got a lot of lessons for us in our own personal lives. You, know, you don't just personalize Jesus. He's not just yours to set on a mantelpiece to look at every now and then and feel better about and feel better about going out into the big bad world. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, The one whose name we carry into the world. The one we speak about. The one we talk about. The one we broadcast far and near as much as we possibly can. Because he is the most important thing that has ever happened in the world. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven means nothing without Jesus. And God does things in his own good time. And he'll do things in his own good time in your life. Just as he does in history. But I wonder if you remember this painting. Now, I know there are a few arty types among us here. And uh, we went on to look at this as we were developing this theme of the kingdom of heaven. Anybody remember the name of the artist who painted this picture? No? Oh, you do, surely. Robert Campen? No? Don't ring any bells? Okay, it was a long time ago. Anyway, this is a painting from the 14th or 15th century. And it's a kind of triptych. Um, Well, as you can see, it's three parts to it, so that's where it gets it from. It's an altarpiece, the kind of things that were uh, painted at times to be able to close over and open up again as altarpieces, which could be portable and could be used. Sometimes they were fixed permanently, but very often they were portable. It's a very interesting picture. 
because it has a great deal of detail in it. If you take the two sides of it, on the one side you have these two people, and if you're wondering who they are, they are almost certainly, we don't know for sure, they're almost certainly the people who commissioned the painting. Um, artists didn't make a lot of money in those days, not like now, where artists are worth a fortune, as every artist will tell you. Um, but they always needed someone to sponsor them, and therefore they painted to order very often, and they very often, as a matter of gratitude, incorporated the sponsors in the picture. So we reckon that this is the sponsors who are looking in on the subject and the theme, and it's developing their piety and their holiness. On the other side, we have Robert's view of a man called Joseph, because in the middle of the picture, the focus of the picture is this woman and an angel, and the woman is clearly meant to be Mary. Lots of very interesting things about this particular picture. Mary is reading the scriptures. They seem to be wrapped in an inordinate amount of cloth, which is very interesting. There's another copy of scriptures open in the Bible. There's all kinds of interesting things on the table. There's John the Baptist making a quick appearance uh, up on the left. There's a, a Jewish prayer shawl. There are all kinds of things. Artists do that. They stick in all kinds of things into a picture to make you think about things. And they're trying to communicate messages. And he's trying to communicate messages, mainly messages about Mary and how he understands Mary, which was really very interesting. Because Mary is not simply to be seen as someone who was capable of bearing a baby. Mary is a woman who, in the eyes of Robert uh, Campon, as he had reflected on scripture and used a lot of the images that are here and highlighted, like the prayer shawl, like the white lily representing purity, like the Bible that is there for learning. Um, Mary was a woman uh, who was spiritual. She was a woman who was biblical, a woman who was radical. And it's very interesting because here is a woman who is open to God. Right at the very beginning of the theme on the kingdom of heaven, as you see Matthew develop it, he, he makes quite a bit about this. Here is a woman who was open to God. Here is a woman who was uh, confident and competent. Uh, here is a woman who was radical in her faith. And between what Matthew tells us and what Luke tells us, we understand that this woman actually was very competent. There were many great people in the Old Testament, many great people of faith, and it took them a long time to get round to being obedient to God, but not with Mary. It seemed to be an instant response. There were many people who found difficulty expressing what God was doing and what God was planning or understanding what God was doing, but Mary seems to be able to reflect on Scripture, the Old Testament Scriptures, and to speak with great clarity and authority. And here's a woman who, in the midst of her culture and her situation, is able to rise above both the moral and the spiritual baggage that she would carry as a woman, pregnant before marriage and being only a woman, and be used by God. And right at the very early stages, in the way in which God works with both Mary and with Joseph, the way in which God works in the Incarnation, it's clear that when God is establishing his kingdom, strange things happen. God seems to break some of the rules that a lot of us hold to be very important in the establishment of his kingdom. He doesn't work the way we would expect. He doesn't bring his son, the Christ, into the world through the royal line that is sitting on a throne in all its glory and splendor, but through a royal line almost forgotten about, but found again in Mary and Joseph and in the birth of Jesus in all of that poverty and in all of that simplicity. So there are things about the kingdom of heaven that become very clear very early on. First of all, it's focused very much on Jesus. 
and what God is doing through him in the fulfilment of all of God's promises, that the way in which God initiates it and brings it in seems to break many of our rules and many of our expectations. And we see that develop particularly in the early chapters of uh, Matthew. Because as you go on to Matthew chapter 2, 3 and 4, you discover that the kingdom of heaven spells trouble. It spells trouble for Herod the king. Matthew 2 is all about kings. It's all about Herod and Jesus, both of whom are kings. In chapter 2 and verse 2, the question is asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? And when Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Kings get on okay with each other when they each retain a respectful distance. But here is a king being born right under Herod's nose and it causes trouble. But it's not just trouble with Herod, it causes trouble with the religious authorities because we begin to see that in the ministry of John. John, who prepares the way for Jesus, says in verse 7 of chapter 3, You brood of vipers, who warned you? To flee from the wrath, the coming wrath. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And we'll see this develop with Jesus right throughout Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 9 marks the beginning of three years of trouble when people decide this fellow is blaspheming. And ultimately, the religious leaders, as we saw in recent weeks, particularly just after Christmas there, were so incensed by what they heard Jesus saying that they were determined to do away with him. And so much of what Jesus says and recorded for us in Matthew 23 makes it clear that there was trouble with the religious authorities. But there was also conflict with the spiritual powers of darkness, because when you reach uh, Matthew chapter 4, you have the temptations of Jesus. And you have... Not just Herod the king having trouble with him. You see not just the beginning of the trouble against, with the religious authorities, but you see spiritual powers of darkness wading in as well. And as Jesus is tempted and the devil in verse 5 takes him to the holy city, has him stand on the highest point and says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. And tempts him on three occasions. But ultimately wants to say to him in verse 8, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Because kingdoms represent power. And the kingdom of heaven coming in the person of Jesus in all the unorthodox ways possible, which people would never have expected through people like Mary and Joseph, is the coming of a kingdom that spells trouble. Trouble with the civil authorities, trouble with the religious authorities, trouble with spiritual authorities. And yet in each of these chapters, if you remember, we notice that the kingdom of heaven not only spells trouble, but it also spells hope. Hope for the outsiders, because it's outsiders who bring this message about the king. It's the magi. It's the ones who are coming from the east. Hope for the penitent, because the whole story of John's preaching in Matthew 3 is the fact that, yes, it ran up against some of the religious authorities, but it marked a change of life for many who were prepared to be penitent and to put their lives right with God. And as Matthew 4 makes it very clear to us as well, it's also... A kingdom and a message which is for the marginalized because as soon as the temptation and that encounter with the powers of darkness is over, Jesus begins to preach. And as he goes and preaches and calls his disciples, he goes around throughout Galilee. He doesn't go to the center. He doesn't go to Jerusalem. He doesn't begin his ministry there. He begins it with the ordinary people in the ordinary places, the ones who were the northerners out in the sticks. And all of those ordinary and marginalized people are incorporated. So the news spread about Syria 
uh, all over Syria. And all the people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering in severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Not just Jews. So by the end of Matthew chapter 4, we see that the kingdom of God comes, not just to bring trouble, but to bring hope. But then there are some more numbers. There are lots of interesting things about numbers in Matthew. And you may remember some of this stuff, where we were looking at the numbers of how there seem to be five key sections in Matthew's gospel which record teaching of Jesus. There's the chapter headings on the screen in front of you. Five to seven, the Sermon on the Mount, the values and the ethics of the kingdom of heaven. Chapter 10, the mission of the kingdom. Chapter 13, how the kingdom works in the world, the story of the seeds and the, and the parables of the seeds. Uh, chapter 18, relationships within the kingdom of heaven, how people are to relate together in that situation. And, verse, and chapters 24 and 25, when the kingdom comes with power. And clearly, very clearly, because each section ends in exactly the same way, each begins in a similar kind of way, Matthew is giving us five key accounts of Jesus' teaching. Why does he give us five? Why does he do it this kind of way? Raises lots of questions with people. And it would appear that what Matthew is doing is basically not trying to simply rewrite the Old Testament or anything as crass as that, but trying to indicate to a Jewish audience, yes, you have the Pentateuch, yes, you have the books of the law, the five important books, but there are also, in the way in which I'm crafting this and putting this together, a clue for you to see that in Jesus, the fulfillment of all of that comes and the kingdom of heaven comes, and here we have it. And so we homed in on one of those in Matthew chapter 13 on the story of the seeds. You might like to turn to that. The parable of the sower. Ask the question, what do you see? What do you hear? Because I'm sure you're familiar with these parables, and not least the first of them, when Jesus uh, tells the uh, parable of a farmer who went out to sow his seed, verse 4 of chapter 13. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell in rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell in good soil, where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So what is it that you hear? What is it that you see going on here? What is it? that uh, God wants us to hear and to see. Well, one of the key things is uh, not simply whether this is actually a parable about the sower or a parable about the seed or a parable about the soils. One of the key things is the beatitude which you discover in verses 16 and 17 as Jesus begins to give an explanation. And here's what he says, Blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. And what Jesus is saying is, that in the coming of the kingdom of heaven, and in his coming amongst the people of his day and generation, and for us, when we see, when we hear who he is, when we understand what God has been doing in the person of Jesus Christ, then there is real blessing. That is when you know the smile of God's approval upon you because this is what actually matters in the world. This is what actually matters in the course of human history. And of course that seeing, that hearing, that understanding of what Jesus has come to do brings with it responsibility of obedience and holiness which Jesus makes very clear in the parable and in his explanations because it should produce a crop. And that crop should be the people who do the will of his Father. And therefore he says to his disciples, therefore prepare your minds, be holy in all you do. Get yourselves ready for the task which is at hand. 
So there's a great deal going on in Matthew's Gospel as um, he opens up this whole theme of the kingdom of heaven for us. What do you see? What do you hear as you read it? Well, one of the things you should see and hear is that we are incredibly privileged and we should live in the light of that responsibility. Here are some of the important seats of power in the world, some more important than others. And I'll leave you to make up your mind as to which is which. And the question that Jesus asked his disciples in the context of the tussles for power that go on in the world of his day and the question that he asks us as his disciples in the tussle for power that goes on in our day and our generation is, who do you say that I am? I know that you live in the midst of all kinds of tensions and all kinds of challenges, but who do you say that I am? Because that is the key question. And when he asks that key question in Matthew chapter 16, we have in the words of Peter a recognition, for the first time expressed very clearly, though not fully understood even by Peter, as to who Jesus is. A declaration that is made not just by virtue of his birth, like in Matthew chapter 1, the whole genealogy thing. Not just a declaration that is made in terms of his teaching, Five sets of it. Matthew pulls it together in that kind of way. But Matthew recording for us a declaration of who he is as experienced, as witnessed by faith by one of his disciples. Another ordinary human being called Peter. So Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now in the world that is out there, who do you say Jesus is? Is he just the Jesus, maybe of more than just the Jesus on our mantelpiece so that we feel better and safer in our homes or whatever? Or is he the Jesus that takes on the powers and authorities in the world and for which all take second place in our lives in contrast to Jesus? Caught a snippet of a radio program this morning called Sunday. It's on every Sunday morning at Radio 4. There was a discussion going on. The discussion was uh, between an interviewer and the Bishop of York Um, who really seems to be stirring things up in lots of ways. You may have noticed uh, on Easter Monday the newspapers full of the pictures of the Bishop of York baptising people by immersion outside the doors of York Cathedral. And as a Church of Ireland minister who was looking at the use of our heaters for the baptism tank that is now in their new church, which he couldn't have because the Chinese are using it today, but that's all, you don't really need to know all of that, um, was pointing out to me that it's not that the Bishop was doing something new, The bishop was re-establishing something that they actually firmly believe in. And so you have a situation where this bishop has been interviewed, not about that, but about a talk that he gave during the week in London about Christianity, about society, about the role of the church and all the rest of it. And in the course of the conversation with the interviewer made it very clear that for him one of the most important things about Christianity is the declaration that Jesus is Lord and Lord of all. Well, you would have thought he had just dropped a time bomb in on the interview. How can you live in a multicultural society? How can you want to encourage a multicultural society in which people of different faiths can live here? And you make a statement like that. Jesus is Lord of all. And the bishop is utterly unrepentant. He is very generous and gracious in the way in which he deals with the question, the way in which he reaffirms constantly his conviction that there is so much uh, of benefit to us as a society by being enriched with people of different traditions, different faiths, the importance of respect of all of that. But he said, the one thing I cannot negotiate and I cannot change is the declaration that Jesus is Lord. Then you can't. And that's what the kingdom of heaven tells us. And that's what the breaking in of the kingdom of heaven does. It says that there is a new loyalty here. And we have to decide for it. And there is no other loyalty that will ever come close. Who do you say that I am? 
Jesus Christ is Lord. And the huge challenge that that presents for us. But not everybody could cope with that. And we noticed that as we worked our way on through in more recent weeks, the end section of Matthew's Gospel. That the message of the kingdom of heaven, the message of what God was doing in Jesus Christ, well it was stirring some people up and stirring their hearts. For others, it was a real problem. It was a problem for the religious authorities. Once Jesus moves into Jerusalem, once he enters Jerusalem in triumph, once he kicks tables over in the temple, he has taken on the leadership at the heart of Judaism at that time. And they have to do something. They really have very little choice. But there are others who have to do something. Others who can't cope with this either. And one of them was Judas, who doesn't seem to be able to cope terribly well with the grace of God that he sees demonstrated in Jesus. Like when a woman comes and takes an incredibly expensive little vial of perfume and anoints Jesus with it. And Jesus makes some ridiculous statement uh, about this being acceptable, this woman touching him, this woman washing his feet with her hair, this woman anointing him in this way, and all this money and all of those kinds of issues. And, And Judas seems to have a problem with that. And yet he comes to an awareness of the innocence of the man he has betrayed. But he can't come to terms with himself and what he has done. And sometimes our understanding of Jesus as it is developed as we work our way through the scriptures and understand more and more of what God is doing in his kingdom raises for us questions which are very difficult. Am I prepared to say that Jesus is Lord and that that's what matters? Can I cope with the grace of God and what it says about me as a sinner and says to me as a sinner? Can I come to terms with myself as one who has worked actively against God instead of for him? And what do I do with my guilt? All that Judas could do and all that the religious authorities could do was take his money back again and spend it on something that wouldn't compromise them too much. And yet the story of the coming of Jesus Christ is that God in his purposes and in his mercy and his grace deals with us according to our need, deals with us in grace, deals with us as we come to terms with ourselves as sinners and rebels, deals with us and our guilt in forgiveness and grace through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of heaven, the declaration and visible presence of God's power, mercy and justice in Jesus Christ. The biggest thing that ever happened in the world. It's the reign of God. His sovereign saving rule in heaven and on earth. And I leave you with this. Do you remember this image? Do you remember the little packets? How many of you planted your seeds? Go on. Don't be shy. I know some of you did. Yeah. There are hands appearing around the place. How many of you ate the produce? Aha. At least two of you. The little seeds that we had. The little mustard seeds. Um, which we gave away one Sunday morning, reminding us, going back to Matthew 13 and other passages of Scripture, reminding us that we are called here to be something and to do something. What Charles described for us as a righteous presence. Do you remember how he spoke about how Abraham, Noah, other greats of the Old Testament were a righteous presence in the world, uh, in a sad and very sorry world and situation? And how, as members of the kingdom of heaven, we are called to be a righteous presence in our day and our generation. That's the challenge that we're left with. And that's the challenge that we engage with as we remember the Lord Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection in the bread and in the wine in the moments that follow. We'll not be talking much more about the kingdom of heaven as a subject in the weeks that lie ahead. Though we'll keep touching on all the aspects that it raises because it affects all aspects of our lives. 
But here's the challenge to go and to be a righteous presence, to sow that seed in the ground. Let it die. Let it grow. Let it produce fruit for the glory of God.